Okay, this morning I'm going to share on humility and brokenness, and I'm going to relate it to the Philippian church, but uh, let's start with a word of prayer. God, we stand in awe of you this morning because you're an awesome God. You're full of majesty, you're full of glory, you're full of unending power. Your reign, God, will never end. Lord, we see all the things that are happening on earth, and our spirit longs for just a reign of complete and total peace. And we thank you that you are the God of peace. And we thank you that you've given us your authoritative word to minister that deep peace, God. And so as we look into the scriptures, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, touch us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in my last sermon as senior pastor on June 26th, I shared a message entitled, You Are My Philippian Church. As Paul expressed his love for the first church that he planted in Macedonia, so I wanted to express my love for you, Five Stones, as the firstborn in our church planting call when the Lord called us to the West Coast, how fast 18 years has gone. In particular, I highlighted the verse from Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. When Paul exhorted the saints in Philippi to hold fast the word of life, he said, My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, hold fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In other words, part of the legacy that Paul desired was to see the Philippians possess an enduring love for the Word of God. There can be no greater joy for Paul than if he returned years later only to find that the Philippians were still fervent as ever about the Bible as when the church was first planted. And this is the point of planting and nurturing and propagating churches, that disciples would be made that love and obey God's Word with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can we say amen? Christianity is a whole person activity. Not just part of who you are, everything. Discipleship is about the heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And there can be no greater fruit than those that love the word of God and obey it. That's what the Great Commission is about. Hence, I exhorted you to not hold back in buying Bible resources. You know, we spend money on so many different things. Our clothes, our vacation, our looks, our tools, our hobbies. But somehow we kind of clutch when it comes to buying Bible resources. Don't do that. And one of the great ways to learn and grow in the Bible is to follow your curiosity. That's what I exhorted you in. To my delight, many of you shared that point back to me over the weeks since then. And I would only emphasize it again. Even more so, let your curiosity run wild. Bible study should be a fun activity. Let the questions trigger a journey and adventure for you. And besides building a personal library of Bible resources, use Google as an aid to answer any and all of your questions. The meaning of words, places, Bible terminology, doctrine, background timelines, and more. Just be careful that you don't click on bad links because there's some bad links out there. Now that's why having a personal library is even better because with your own resources, you have a pre-vetted, trusted, and authoritative source at your fingertips. But there is one key point that I did not get a chance to share. The reason why studying and loving your Bible is so powerful is because it leads to first-order learning, which is learning directly from God. 
This is the highest form of learning because there's no intermediary. There's no preacher, there's no teacher, just God speaking directly to you. When you listen to the preacher, you may appreciate it, but it's second-order learning. But when you allow the Bible to be your direct messenger, that leads to first-order transformation. You're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're hearing the voice of God speak to you through the living word, which is sharper and active than any two-edged sword. Amen? This is not a dead document. It's not like a novel that you read once and you go, okay, I get it. No, you read it over and over and it speaks and it speaks and encourages and causes us to be whole and to be strong. That's first-order transformation. That's the face-to-face communication with God like Moses had in his tent. 2 Corinthians 3 refers to this as being changed from one degree of glory to another. A lot of times we hear in culture, oh, I want to be a better version of myself. Right? We hear this all the time. No. God wants you to be a better version of Jesus. It's not about you getting better. It's about Jesus being shaped in you even more. And so God is using the word to transform you from one degree of glory to another, which looks like Jesus. Your heart becomes a tablet upon which God is writing his word. There's nothing more powerful or permanent than when God speaks to you. There are many times when you've heard me preach, and by the time you're eating lunch, you forgot what I said. But when God speaks to you, bam, it's permanent. It goes into deep memory. Matthew 4.4 tells us that God has this kind of transformation for us every single day. Daily rhema. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. He was sharing his secret source, his secret strength, the reason why he was so vibrant and alive and could be outflowing with the spirit and the life of God. Because that transformation, that direct communication was happening between him and the Father and the Word. There's no better way to be a New Testament disciple than to hold fast to God's Word. And we need on-fire Christians more than ever. Do we not? Is this not the crisis of the hour? Where is the fire in Christians? Where is the zeal? We're seeing an epidemic of passive, unmotivated, uneducated Christians. Right now, culture is coming at us like a tornado to rip our foundations out from under us. But when you have the word of God in your hearts, beloved, fear not, the tornadoes will obey you. But on that Sunday, two months ago, I didn't get a chance to talk about this idea of first order learning. Because as you know, for those of you that were there, I was unable to finish my message. I became so disorientated. Right here, during the sermon, I could not get myself back on track. For the first time in 30 years of preaching, I had to stop in the middle of my message. My kids had flown in from the States. Many showed up or tuned in to share their well wishes. And now I couldn't even finish my message. When I went back to watch the video, it was a painful 15 to 20 minutes of struggling. It was distressing, really distressing. Thankfully, John and Alex had my back, and truth be told, you all had my back as well. If there was ever a group of people to fail in front of, you were it. I couldn't have asked for a more understanding and loving group. But I need to take you behind the scenes to what happened three hours earlier that morning. 
As per my routine, I get up early before the service to pray. But of course, this being Mimi and my last Sunday, it had a special meaning and emotion. And here's what I wrote in my journal that morning. Prior to the service, I'm going to read it to you uncut. June 26, 2022, crossover day. Last Sunday as senior pastor. God is showing me the picture of five loaves and two fishes and the joy of brokenness. The five loaves, quickened to me, stands for the Five Stones Church. And the two fishes stand for Rich and Mimi. God is saying the joy of brokenness leads to outsized blessing. 5,000 or 14,000 fed by some calculations. A, Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. A day of completion and also a day of crossover. B, a day of embracing the joy of brokenness for a new level of blessing. Five loaves, two fishes is our new marching orders. C, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength in the midst of that brokenness. This is what will stain us in our ministry in the coming days. Share these verses with a congregation during the laying on of hands. So I couldn't finish my message. John and Alex came up. The elders came up, but I was so discombobulated in my mind, I was unable to share these thoughts. I was so focused on sharing my last sermon, not realizing that God was up to something different. He had an installation ceremony for me that I did not anticipate. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for the sake of Christ, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. There's that very personal turmoil I had after it. And truth be told, there was maybe a whole part of me that was not present at the picnic because I was still reeling. But as the days went on, I realized I need to just embrace and boast in my weaknesses. First Corinthians 4, Paul says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. In some versions it says, end of the parade. You know how when you go to a parade, it's the front of the, the parade that you're excited about? People don't wait for the end. That's, that's like, but no. God has displayed his servants at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena. Paul is signaling to the Corinthian audience, the arena, that's a very powerful word, like the Colosseum stuff. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. Little did I know that God was telling me in my devotion that morning that he was going to literally use five stones to break me in preparation for our next phase of ministry. It was devastating, but it was good. God does all things well. God wants me to abide in weakness. In the following days, God would expand and clarify this word about humility and brokenness. And during a conference a couple weeks later in Knoxville, Tennessee, I summarized it in this way. God wants us to make humility our superpower and brokenness our happy place. 
God wants us to make humility our superpower and brokenness our happy place. God began opening my eyes to Matthew 5, 3 in a new way. Humility and brokenness is the first law of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first law of discipleship. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is where you begin. For the disciple to be humble and to be broken, to be and to embrace that poorness. We know in Revelation chapter 3 that one of the distinctive traits of the last day society and church and culture is not humility, but a pride. And so there is a culture clash that's going on between what God wants to establish in you and what's happening out there in society. That humility opens the door to the kingdom, as it says in this verse, as in the totality of the kingdom and who God is. Humility doesn't give us partial access or three-quarter access to God in his domain. It's access to the totality of who God is. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. And this has been my daily meditation since June 26. And it all started the day I couldn't finish my message. Which brings me, back, brings me back to the Philippian church. Why did Paul really write this letter? Was it to share doctrine? Was it to correct some error in the church? Why was he so joyful? Theologians say that it's his most joyful letter of the 13 that he wrote in the New Testament. 16 times he uses the word joy or rejoice. Why was he so happy? Well, it turns out the answer is in plain sight. He wrote this letter because the Philippians were so generous and so good at giving. Chapter 1, right at the beginning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He's just effusive. It's just coming out of his heart. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What was that participation? Well, the answer is given to us in chapter 4. You yourselves, Philippians, you know that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Think about this. No church helping Paul in giving but the Philippians. They were the only church. Of all the churches that Paul planted, that's a very lonely feeling for our dear apostle. All the effort and care and love and only one church was supporting Paul. Can you imagine the privilege to be able to say, I gave to Paul's ministry, arguably the greatest apostolic ministry in history outside of Jesus. That's like saying, I contributed to Billy Graham's ministry, or I contributed to Mother Teresa's ministry. The, cho the churches that are planted, the souls that are saved, the, the hurting that are comforted, it's unbelievable. God counts us as partners with such servants when we give to them. If there was one church that was loyal to Paul, it was the Philippian church. Now, as you know, Paul was a tent maker. He supported himself. He didn't need the finances. But he was so filled with joy and encouragement 
when the Philippian church financially supported him, not just once, but repeatedly. The great apostle Paul, the one who is hidden Christ and whom he is constantly in view of the treasures of Jesus, was so happy and joyful when these offerings came to him. This is the power of money. This is the good side of money. It brings encouragement to God's servants and extends the kingdom. You know, in those days, sending money was not by Interact or e-transfer or wiring or Apple Pay. They had to send a personal courier to get the money to him. And that courier was a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. I've received everything in full and have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What a joy for Paul, support that was full and abundant. It wasn't a meager offering. I have in this, this picture in my mind like just a good mound of finances, like a big plate of spaghetti and meatballs. It's like, oh, this is so good. I can't wait to dig into it. That's how it hit Paul. I have received in full, and it's, it's abundant. It's more than enough. One of the most discouraging things for a minister when they go on the road is to put their heart and soul into something and then get some meager offering. It's a disappointment. It hurts. Did you know that our giving can be a fragrant aroma to God? You know, we talk about how sin can be stench. We talk about humanity can just have this odor that is offensive. But there's the opposite. Our offerings can be a fragrant aroma to God, a pleasing sacrifice. The Philippian church understood the principle of the five loaves and two fishes. If you hang on to your resources, a few of your friends might get a lunch. But if you surrender it all to God, the multitudes will be fed. Besides Epaphroditus, we know that Lydia, the businesswoman, was the other main character in the Philippian story. This is found in Acts chapter 16. Lydia was the first one to get saved. Paul goes into Philippi, the city of Philippi, cold calls the city. No invitation, just raw trust in God. Okay, Lord, I'm going to that city. You lead me and you guide me. He has this divine encounter with Lydia by the riverside, and she gets saved. First fruits. And then she ignites a revival in her family so that they all got saved and they all got baptized. Now things are starting to pick up. Momentum is moving here. And then she was the one that implored Paul and Silas to stay with her. She was the home in which the church was started. She was the one with a transformed heart ready to give of her wealth. And we can safely say she did not fall into the trap of being the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18? He came to Jesus and he asked a very important question. How can I inherit eternal life? Can there be a more important question than that? And so Jesus says to him, well, have you obeyed the commandments? Have you committed adultery? Have you murdered? Have you stolen? Have you honored your father and mother? 
Seventh, sixth, eighth, and fifth commandment, Jesus asked him. And the rich man said to him in Luke 18, 21, all these I have kept from my youth. So he was from good tradition. He was from good stock. He was around a godly environment. But Jesus said to him in verse 22, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This young man was moral, he was spiritual, he was seeking, he was God-fearing, he was wealthy. By all rights, he was in good standing with God. But Jesus said, there's one area in which you are not surrendered, your money. Lydia, like the rich young ruler, was wealthy. In fact, she owned a home that was large enough not only to house her family, an extended family, but also had guest rooms. Hence, she could invite Paul and Silas to be with them. She was a merchant selling purple fabrics. That's what it says in Acts 16. Verse 14, that was her trade. Now, purple cloth in that time was valuable and expensive, and purple was often worn as a sign of nobility or royalty. So her clientele was probably well-heeled and powerful, those that could afford expensive wear like that. She came from an area called Thyatira, and it was known for its commerce, famous for its expensive purple dyes. And it was celebrated for their beautiful purple manufacturers. This purple dye came from sea snails. Sea snails. So the extraction process was extremely tedious and laborious. Hence, that dye was so valuable. So Lydia was working in a very lucrative market. It was like she was selling Hermes products in her time. But unlike the rich young ruler, she surrendered her riches to God. They were consecrated to him. And from the context of this story, Lydia was most likely the one that rallied the Philippian church to support Paul and then dispatched Epaphroditus to bring Paul the offerings. I can just see her, sort of a mother in the house, putting her arm around Epaphroditus. And it's like, I've got a trip for you. I'm going to pay for your expenses. I'm going to get you the best donkey to ride on. I'm going to put you in the best inn. You're going to have the best bagels and hummus. It's going to be an awesome trip. And Epaphroditus is like, yeah, send me on it. I'm going to give you this offering from the church to give to Paul. And Epaphroditus is all in. He's excited. That was Lydia's doing. Something in Lydia's heart was so clear in this church plant. And one of the things that we should take away is, church, don't be the rich young ruler. Be a Lydia, surrendering all your riches to God. But herein lies the war in our souls. We don't want to give up our money, whether we're rich or poor. Okay, maybe I'll give a little bit to God, maybe one loaf and one fish. Just enough to ease my conscience, but not everything. And by the way, those five little loaves that the lad had was not like five 
sacks of Wonder Bread. I mean, we may picture it in our minds, but it was probably like five little baguettes. And the fish wasn't like some 18-inch salmon. It was probably more like little sardines. But our mind said, okay, I'll give away one of my little loaves or one of my little fish just to ease my conscience. And we have all sorts of reasons to hang on to our money. We have bills to pay. We can't afford it. It's going to hamper my lifestyle. And here's a biggie. It's my hard-earned money. We don't subscribe to Deuteronomy 8.18, where Moses said to the Israelites, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. Moses said this to Israel. He said, listen, when I bring you into the promised land, and when you are satisfied, you've built good houses, when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, you will be tempted to think this. Verse 18, my power and strength of my hand made this wealth. There's war going on in our soul. Did God really do this? Did God really give me power? Or is it my doing? I'm the one that got the promotion. I'm the one that mailed the sales. I'm the one that landed the deal. I'm the one that came up with the idea. Really? Did you notice that in nearly half of the testimonies this summer, in Liz's testimony, in Tracy's testimony, in Brian's testimony, something pivotal about finances made its way into their story. And they weren't even talking about finances. It just made their way into what God was doing. Part of God increasing in our lives is breaking our control over money. Money is a test of our testimony with God. It's part of our consecration. It's part of God's lordship over our lives. Oh, we love him as Savior, but the lordship part can be negotiable. I get to choose what I want to submit to. That goes right back to the Garden of Eden, to the tree of knowledge and good and evil, where you get to decide, you get to evaluate, you get to judge God whether he has the rights over this or that in your life, including money. Now, we may not say it out loud, but for many of us, money represents our identity our culture, our upbringing, or just our sinful flesh reinforces this over and over. Who we are is wrapped up in our net worth or what is in our bank account. Let me ask you this. this is that the measure of who you are? I hope not because you cannot take a dime of your money to heaven. There are no millionaires or billionaires in heaven. Not a single one. Nor will there be for all of eternity. But the treasures you lay up in heaven, that's the true measure of who you are. Money is all too often a source of pride or stubbornness. Our money represents the strength of our soul. That's why we need humility and brokenness to break the power of our soul. When God displayed me in weakness on that, in that service on July 29th. He was saying to me, Rich, as you go forward, you cannot rely on your own strength. It's about me. That's your safest place. The Philippian church, they weren't rich. They weren't a mega church. But they were humble 
and surrendered and free with regard to their earthly possessions. That was a sign, a picture of their beautiful consecration. Consecration means to set aside something for God. So this is mine, Lord, and this little portion, that's yours. The more you take the stuff on this side of the table and you put it on that side of the table, the more you are going to be free and your treasure will be in heaven. Our souls must be broken and humble in all things, including our money. That's how multiplication works. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus' body broken for you. Don't we do that every Sunday? This is my body broken for you when we take communion. No less than eight adjectives are used in Isaiah 53 to describe the broken condition of your Lord and Savior. He was wounded. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was smitten. He was stricken. He was rejected. And he was despised. His brokenness has saved billions of people and counting. Hallelujah. No one has proven the power of brokenness more than Jesus. So when I talk about the example of finances in the Philippian church, I'm only calling out one area among many areas in our walk with God where he wants us to flourish through being tender-hearted and malleable and supple in his hand. So here's my bold challenge today. Not only am I commending you as my Philippian church, I'm also going to ask you to be like the Philippian church, to be a New Testament church, to be a history-making church by your giving. Yes, our little church. It's not the amount, it's the heart and collective surrender. Why shouldn't we aspire to this? Why shouldn't we aspire to be the Philippian church? Why shouldn't this be our vision? Why shouldn't we be like the Philippian church that was the only church that had financial vision and moxie? Why shouldn't we be at Five Stones Church known for our giving? Pastor John, in early July, challenged the church that one person should sell their property and give all the proceeds to God, just like they did in the early church. You guys remember that? I'm reminding you now. I know you will all rush to go watch that YouTube video and say, oh yeah, bring it on, Pastor John, I want to hear it again. He did that. Was that a crazy request? No, it's a crazy, exciting request. There's something about generosity that will get released into this congregation when one person begins the breakthrough. Why shouldn't we be radical in this? And we can and we should be. And all that it takes is that each of us do our part. Not one person doing everyone's part. Don't pray in a billionaire. Don't pray in a multimillionaire that will give to the church and solve everyone else's problems. That's not what this message is about. This message is that each one of us do our parts, and that becomes the aroma and fragrant offering to the Lord. And when each of us do our part, bam, watch history be made. So here's my proposal. I'd like for us as a whole church to embark on a three-month tithing experiment. 
John talked about the biblical basis in early July, so I don't need to cover that part. Tithing means giving one-tenth of our earnings. Do we need to draw a deep cleansing breath right now? You might be feeling a little anxious, maybe a little upset with me, or nervously excited. But imagine giving God 10% of your earnings, writing out the check. Everyone just right now, picture in your mind writing out a check for 10% of your monthly earnings, whatever that number is. Or hitting the transfer button on your bank account or sending it over an app. Feel it. Make it visceral. Make it real. Now there might be some pain and anger, resentment or fear that you're in the service this morning. That's okay. New habits require turning over old emotions. Maybe you've been giving $100 a month, but a tithe would represent $500 a month. In other words, this challenge is not only to those who have not been tithing, but to those that have been giving but not tithing. Now, September is upon us. That's just four days away. In preparation for this experiment, I want us to take one month, the month of September, to work through your budgets, the objections in your heart, the resistances in your heart. Pray it through. Adjust your finances. Talk it over with your spouses, your family, and yourself. Do the math and start with 10% to God and then work the numbers from there. Don't do it backwards where you do the math and wonder if you have 10% left to give to God. Solomon told us in Proverbs 3, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Not the last, not the leftovers, the first. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Truth be told, you cannot outgive God. If you give properly and it's in a place of worship and consecration, the wine cannot be stopped. The barns will be filled with plenty. Will you need to cut back on something if you do this or give up something? Maybe. When I say tithing 10% of your earnings, I'm talking gross. Pay, not net. You know how much I know you think you are worth? When someone asks you how much you earn, you never quote your net salary. Oh, yeah, I make 75000 You never say, oh, I make 55000 No, you don't do that. Your identity is your gross. That's your identity before God. So bless him with the way that you think about yourself and your earning power. And this is for all the income earners in your home, not just the husband who then covers for the wife's earning, or not just the wife who covers for the husband's earning. No, both the husband and wife should be giving 10%. So my encouragement is get ready in September, practically, emotionally, spiritually. And then for three months, October, November, December, yes, including Christmas holiday, give 10% to God. And during these three months, journal your thoughts. Your ups, downs, temptations, excitements, failures. And tell me if you don't experience more of God and have better mental health. Feel stronger as a disciple because of this. Now you may never tithe again after this experiment. But at least you can say, 
for once in your life, you tried it. My big bet is that you will find new freedom and power in your walk with God. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get an avalanche of responses saying, why didn't I do this sooner? Beloved, God wants us to walk in humility and brokenness. This is ostensibly a message about money, but it's really not. It's about our hearts. Make humility your superpower and brokenness your happy place. And watch out if heavens don't break over this little church. I really mean that. I really mean, I truly believe this church can make history by having a reputation in the area of finances. We want to be like Lydia in the Philippian church and not the rich young ruler. Father, as we come before you right now, I pray for a corporate grace to touch this family. I pray, God, not a dread would be upon us, but an excitement for what you want to do. You have sovereignly called this church into existence, and there's so much more ahead for this family. And we know part of how you release your blessing in the earth is to, through finances. In the same way that we saw Lydia in the Philippian church they got the privilege of supporting the greatest apostolic ministry in history. And because of that support, a God-inspired letter made it into the Bible, all because of a generous heart. I know each of us, Lord, will have a particular journey to making a decision in this area. Speak to our hearts. Let your grace be upon us. And let a release come to Five Stones Church in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. A message of humility and brokenness. I love that Rich said that humility is my superpower and that brokenness is a place that I rest. And a lot of us think that, well, the brokenness is a funny place to rest. But brokenness isn't meaning that you're going to be in this place where you feel desperate and when you feel like, I can't move on during the day. That's not the brokenness we're talking about. The brokenness that we're talking about is more like what Paul's example of storing treasures in jars of clay. Is that idea that it's absurd to store treasures in jars of clay, but as jars of clay is is one of those things that are fragile. Over time, it just breaks, it cracks, and over time, it, it becomes useless. It can't hold treasure. But it is in those moments that as it breaks and cracks that God's treasure is, begins to be revealed. That's the brokenness we're talking about. The brokenness isn't about, oh, I need to be down on myself all the time. That's not what it's about. The brokenness is that I am broken in a place where I completely and completely put my trust and faith in who God is. That's the brokenness that we're talking about. The humility that comes with it is that I am able to, to exalt a king that is higher than myself. Instead of putting myself first, I put Jesus first. That's the humility and brokenness that it comes to. As which was 
preaching, Maggie texted me and she said there's a story that she was given this morning from 1 Kings chapter 17. And she's shared it a little bit with me and it goes so well with just what Rich has spoken about. Where the prophet Elijah is sent to a place called Zarephath. And God commanded a widow to feed him. A widow. We know that in those days, the widows are the lowest of the lows. That's why we have a call as Five Stones Church to take care of the widows and orphans. That nobody else takes care of them. But God commands a widow to feed him and a widow to provide for him. That's crazy. Widows have nothing. And when Elijah goes to this city and he finds this widow, this widow is literally collecting just sticks to prepare the last meal for her and her son, and that's it. That's it. They're done. There's no more left. I have very little flour and oil left. I have nothing left. And as Elijah approaches her, she tells him, I have nothing. This is my last meal, and then we're going to starve. What does Elijah say to her? Make the bread and give it to who first? Me first. Not your son, not yourself. But give it to me first. And how does the widow respond? She obeys and gives it to Elijah. And the jars never became empty again. That she was able to give out of the little that she had. And God's abundance came in. What a powerful thing. Church, I really believe, and I resonate with what Rich said, that this church is going to be a church of generosity. Why? Because this church is, gonna, is called to do incredible things in this city. Incredible things to help others. Out of the finances of this church, we're going to see people become healed. Out of the finances of this church, we're going to see things being restored. It's not for our gain, but it's for God's glory. This is the assignment that's put in front of us. This is the assignment put in front of all churches. But can we as five stones be obedient to that call? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us an opportunity to walk out in obedience what you've called us to do. For giving us an opportunity to be your light. For giving us an opportunity to be jars of clay. That we're able to stand in a place of humility and brokenness and say, all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours because of what you've done for me. So, Father God, we thank you for your grace for your mercy, and for your compassion. We thank you for your love poured into your church so that your love can be an outflow of the church. So, Lord, encourage us with your spirit. Give us courage to walk this out. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed, church. We'll see you guys next week.